Good morning, church. What's up? <laughs> Been looking forward to this day. I always uh, enjoy having the opportunity to stand up here and to um, be used by God to encourage his people. And I hope you guys leave encouraged today. Um, we're going to open our Bibles to the gospel according to Luke. And we're going to be in chapter 7. Our main text for today is going to be in verses 11 through 17. And the title of my sermon is A Compassionate God, Savior, and Friend. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for this day. Um, thank you for another opportunity to come together with your body uh, to worship you. Lord, I pray that you will help me today. Um, put aside my pride, put aside my fear and anxiety. Um, Lord, help me to preach the word. Um, Lord, help me to speak to your people the words that you would have for them. Um, and I pray that you will be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's uh, pretty obvious um, right now that the culture we live in is experiencing a lot of pain. Upwards of three million people died last year. Millions are still fighting for their lives even now. Even within our congregation, it seems like we are in a time of trial through suffering. Um, I myself just got back from burying my aunt yesterday in Jersey, and a little over a month ago, I buried a friend of mine. And so we have all on some level dealt with this pain of loss, whether it be a friend, a child, or a parent. We have experienced the grief, the sadness, and the unexplainable despair that comes with suffering. Even while we have an understanding of these things, I think in some ways, I think it's safe to say that we have also become desensitized to it. Sometimes it can even be an inconvenience. Too often we even make light of what can be extremely burdensome in the life of others, and I can raise my hand and say myself included. We might feel powerless and unequipped to do anything about it. It can be a crushing and hopeless feeling that even shakes the most biblically sound of us to the core, like a spiritual trauma. Whether you are in this very moment the person who is at a loss too great to bear, or a person who is living your life with blinders, with your head in the sand, ignoring the plight of those around you, I want to encourage you today. I want you to look to Christ, the one who has the power to heal, the one who has the power to restore, and the power to reconcile, the power to grant joy and peace. Look to Christ, our righteousness, who has gone before us, as I say all the time. Not only did he become our substitution in life, right, or in death, but also in life, as he was in perfect obedience to the Father, right? And, and that included not just his love for the Father, but we see that in his service and his love for the people. And so let's begin reading where Abner left off last week, beginning in Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through 17. It reads, soon after he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, 
and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. I want to take some time this morning to highlight just a few things in this passage. The setting in verses 11 and 12. The compassion of Christ in verses 13 through 15. And the reaction of the people which will be found in verses 15 and 16. For today it's my hope that our awareness and affection for those who are among us suffering will be magnified as well as our reverence for Christ. It's my prayer that God will speak to you today through his word and that you will leave here today reminded of the compassion that God has towards us. So up until this point, we've witnessed the extraordinary life of Jesus. We see him preaching in the synagogues in such a way that puts the Pharisees to shame as a child and as a man. We see Jesus on the mountain preaching in the open air concerning the attitudes of the godly and the godless. However, while Jesus was a man of great knowledge and wisdom, his actions were even greater as we witnessed Jesus among the people, the God who would tabernacle with his people, right? Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah who would not only talk the talk, but his words would be a snapshot of the life that he lived. He walked it out, a life that proved his love for the father and again, his love for people. We witnessed this in the text last week, right? After Jesus is through preaching concerning the love that we ought to have for our neighbors and about the fruit that comes from a good tree, Jesus heals this servant of a centurion who was sick. He was at the point of death. We get to verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. When I read these verses or when I was studying this, I was imagining myself there. Um, listening to him speak and witnessing these great miracles and acts of compassion towards the people. Thinking what would it have been like to even just be there among the people. We know what the psalmist says, right? It's better to have one day in the courts of God than to be anywhere else in the world for a thousand days. To just be in his presence, in the presence of the Lord, the presence of the God made flesh had to be an indescribable experience. Even from the perspective of a non-believer to witness these things, sight being restored to the blind, the lame rising out of their beds, the mute and abled to speak, all by the words of a man who had no majesty that we would look at him. <laughs> there was nothing appealing or attractive about this Jesus, yet the crowds followed him. Imagine being a follower of God in the first century, anticipating this arrival of the Messiah, You've read Psalm chapter 8, verses 5 and 6 concerning his humble service towards man, and now you're witnessing it. You've read Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 concerning his miraculous ministry, and you've seen miracle after miracle. You've read Isaiah 43 and 4 concerning the voice that would cry out from the wilderness, and you've seen the one that the voice was crying out for. You also would know that he will be rejected by many because you've read Isaiah 53, 3. Yet you rejoice knowing that this Messiah was anointed and would come to give freedom to the captives and to the oppressed, to preach the good news to the poor, as it says in Isaiah 61.1. And Jesus would read this exact passage just three chapters ago in chapter 4. And after he read it, he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And do you remember what he said? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This great crowd who has witnessed this Jesus, his disciples, as well as those who might have been unconvinced, just witnessed him healing a man who was at the point of death. But little did they know what would happen next, right? As they followed Jesus to a town that was less than 10 miles from Nazareth called Nain, one ancient Jewish source says that 
named lied in the territory of the tribe of Issachar. However, today it's identified with the Muslim town of Nain, spelled N-E-I-N. And so Jesus, along with this great crowd that followed, verse 12, drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, and a man had died, who had died, was being carried out. It would appear to most of us that he was too late, right? He, he got there too late. He wasn't sick and on his deathbed like the last guy. He had already died. The only son of his mother, and she was a, a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So now outside of the gate of Nain, you have two crowds, right? You have one crowd that's excited and hopeful, maybe a little rowdy because they just seen yet another miracle performed by this Jesus. Suddenly they're in the path of this other crowd that was, was sad. They were mourning. They were without hope. They were bearing the pain of and sharing the pain of this widow who had lost her only son. The passage doesn't tell us how he died. The passage doesn't tell us how her son died or when he died. But we, what we do know is that this woman who just suffered the loss of her child has also already suffered the loss of a husband. And he was being carried out of the town. Again, imagine being there. Imagine this widow losing possibly all that she had left. She no longer had a husband, leaving her not only emotionally but economically devastated. And here in Luke, he uses this technical term for carrying out a corpse for burial. She had no one left to take care of her and to support her. She was brokenhearted. The Bible often speaks of these widows um, 54 to 56 times in the Old Testament. The same word can be found 26 times in the New Testament. And when you consider the amount of chapters or in books in the Old versus the New, when you kind of parse it out, widows are spoken of about an equal amount of time. I think it's important that we pay attention to the widows because the Bible does. According to Baker's Evangelical Dictionary, words that occur in the general semantic field of the term widow in the Bible shed light on both her, both her personal experience and social plight. Weeping, mourning, and desolation describe her personal experience after the loss of her spouse as poverty and indebtedness were all too often descriptive of her financial situation when the main source of her economic support, her husband, had perished. Indeed, she was frequently placed alongside the orphan and the landless immigrant. As representative of the poorest of the poor in the social structure of ancient Israel as well as in the ancient Near East, with minimal if any inheritance rights, she was often in a no man's land she had left her family, and with her husband's death, the bond between her and his family was tenuous, meaning she was tied to the family by a thin thread. She became insignificant. Although these people were religious, their religion was worthless because we know what James says about pure religion that is righteous and acceptable before God is to visit the orphans and these widows in their affliction. Yet, at times, they would ignore and disown the widows even in their own family. This is the situation here in the text. It's a blessing to be a part of a church that I'm pretty sure wouldn't let that happen, right? <laughs> we have witnessed what God has done here, maybe not with widows, but with the wives of those who have lost their husbands for a season. The financial hardship and emotional despair can be very similar. Sadly, these very people are overlooked today in our society. Too often we see the tragedy of a father leaving behind a wife and the children too early, leaving a mother to fend for herself, the struggle to be a father and mother, trying to provide and protect in a way that a mother is not designed for. We also have far too many functional widows procreating with men who turn out to be deadbeats. 
Mothers like mine who struggled to raise six kids on her own. When we see them, our heart will be exposed in our interaction or our lack thereof. We have habitually looked the other way concerning widows in our society, whether they physically lost their husbands or whether there's no father around to actually shepherd that family. But not Jesus, right? Verse 13 says, and when the Lord saw her, he didn't just see this woman. Her entire situation was known to him practically and inwardly. Jesus didn't have technology like a created character, say Tony Starks, who can scan and evaluate vulnerability. But as God, knowing what she was thinking, knowing what she was in need of and knowing what she was feeling, he saw her and had compassion on her. His heart went out to her. We come across situations like this all the time, right? When people lose someone that they love, we have compassion and we say things like, I'm sorry for your loss, right? It's going to be okay. Let me know if there's anything that I can do. Sometimes we don't know what to say and we just listen. Sometimes all we can do is be a shoulder to cry on. Especially in times like this, the situation couldn't be any worse. You have a childless widow. This is the ugly reality concerning sin. I think this is something that we have to pay attention to. Romans 5.12 says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Everything wrong in the world today came as a result of sin. And Christians have a hard time explaining this, this problem of evil. The problem of pain and suffering, why does God allow it? Putting God on trial. No, this one is on us. It might not be easy to accept, but it's very easy to understand that we are the problem and the gospel is the answer. But does this not reveal the love of God in sending his son to take on flesh as a man, to, to live and to die and to be resurrected so that he can reverse the curse for all who by God's spirit exercise faith in this Jesus that we're reading about in the text today? We see his passion as he goes to the cross for sinners like us. And we see his compassion as he shows empathy for those who are suffering in this life. Soon we'll see that this compassion wasn't empty words. His compassion wasn't manifested in the sending of good vibes. His compassion was not simply acknowledging the reality of her status. But, but compassion is not a, a nice quote. It's not a pretty picture. It's actually a verb, right? Compassion is an action. It's an expression of empathy that, is, that has love, right? Compassion has tears and hands and feet. Compassion is an action, and he saw her with compassion. With compassion, he spoke to her, and in compassion, he would restore what this widow lost, which is why Jesus can tell a widow who just lost her son <laughs> on the way to burying him, do not weep. How could Jesus tell a widow who lost her only child not to weep? She had every reason to cry, every reason to be without hope, every reason to be broken and in despair. Living in today's day and age, I doubt we can fully comprehend her situation. It's said that the poorest 20% of Americans are richer on average than most nations in Europe. Forbes wrote an article in 2014 titled, By Global Standards, There Are No American Poor. All in the U.S. are middle class or better. The World Bank wrote an article claiming nearly half of the world lives on less than $5.50 per day. That's a cup of coffee. That's a coffee budget, a cigarette budget for us Americans. 
This is what they say in the article, quote, while rates of extreme poverty have declined substantially, falling from 36% in 1990, the report's expanded examination of the nature of poverty demonstrates the magnitude of the challenge in eradicating it. Over 1.9 billion people, or 26.2% of the world's population, were living on less than $3.26 per day. That was in 2015. Close to 46% of the world's population was living on less than $5.50 a day. So I think it's safe to say that we can't imagine the reality of what a widow during that time would be going through, and a childless widow at that in the first century context. Yet Jesus says, do not weep. <laughs> I can guarantee you that those three words commanded the attention of everyone there in that crowd today. Those who knew what he was capable of, wondering what he was going to do this time, right? Maybe even thinking about the prophets of old who done similar acts in First and Second Kings. I think it's safe to speculate that there were some who were offended by what they were perceived as inconsiderate coming from the mouth of Jesus. Verse 14, it says, then he came up and touched the bear and the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Picture this ladder type structure that you would hold horizontally. They would use it to actually carry the casket. You see him today. This young man wasn't laying in a casket. I'm not sure if this symbolizes that they were poor, or if that was just normal during that time, but he was being carried on this ladder type structure. And someone might say that he touched this structure, he touched the bear, because if he touched the body of this man, he will become unclean according to Numbers chapter 19. But just a chapter later, Jesus would touch the body of a dead little girl in Luke chapter eight, verses 49 through 56. And I'm gonna read that. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but asleep or but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child arise and her spirit returned and she got up at once. And he and he uh, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, Jesus wasn't in denial by saying that she was asleep, but knowing what he would do, her death was temporary like sleep. Her spirit returned to her. So obviously she was dead. Right. But what is this saying about this Jesus who can do things that the scripture says that you will be defiled for doing? He touched the body of a dead person. Right. Jesus says things that no one can say. He operates with this authority that we see being utilized by no one else in the scripture. A pastor said these words in response to the question, did Jesus become unclean when he touched this dead little girl? And I think it applies to our text today still. But he says, quote, whereas every other person will be defiled by touching something unclean, Jesus was the exact opposite. Jesus was so clean that he touched unclean things and made them clean. He touched the dead girl and rather than him being defiled by her, she was given life by him. He touched the people with leprosy and skin diseases without a mask. I added the mask part. <laughs> and rather than him being defiled by them, they were made clean by him. 
He touched the demon possessed and rather than him being defiled by them, they were delivered of their demons and made clean by him. And something that we can all relate to. He ate and he drank with sinners and made them want to stop sinning. He also forgave them of their sins. Our text in Luke chapter 7 shows us something even greater than the laying on of hands, namely the power to produce life simply by utilizing the spoken word, something that we see God doing in Genesis. Elijah prayed, crying out to God to raise the widow of Zarephath. Elisha cried out to the Lord to raise the Shunammite woman's son. Peter prayed and fell to his knees before telling Tabitha to get up. Yet Jesus, on his own authority, has done what only God can do. He says, jump, and creation says, how high? Right? The text says, who is this man that even the waves and the winds obey his voice? He simply says, young man, I say to you, arise. And this dead man sat up. Another sign proving his proving um, providing evidence that he is the son of God, this awaited Messiah through whom the kingdom of God will be established. Those who continue to doubt will no longer have an excuse. Right. Those who may have heard stories about this Jesus has now witnessed him and they can now understand this wonder surrounding him and his ministry as this man sat up. They helped carry him, carry him out. He had no pulse. He had no air in his lungs, no spirit in his body. Yet before their very eyes, he not only sat up, but this man began to speak. What did he say? <laughs> Do you think he thanked Jesus? Do you think he proclaimed the greatness of what Jesus has just done before their eyes? Did he tell his mom, no, you're not dreaming. It's really me. I'm alive and well, feeling better than ever. All we know is not only did he get up, but he began to speak. If you had any doubt in thinking you were seeing something, you now heard something, right? Now, do you remember when Jesus gave you new life? Did you not speak of his goodness? Did you not speak of his mercy? Did you not go to the mountaintop and say that he did it for me, he can do it for you? And if you know yourself the way I know myself, salvation is an even greater miracle than this. And he does it far more often than he has raised the dead man to life. Well, all the time he raises spiritually dead men, right? Well, this miracle in our text today was not granted through. It was not established by or in any way the result of faith. At times we see God moving by faith. And even then it is the unmerited express, expression of compassion to the praise of his glorious grace. Because we know God doesn't move outside of what he has determined before he even revealed anything in creation. And so Jesus gave him to his mother. Not only restoring to her a son, but her very livelihood, her means of provision and protection. I can hear people shouting with great joy. I'm sure they were wiping tears from their eyes and laughing and dancing because they were no longer mourning, but celebrating. And they didn't celebrate the miracle that they saw. They celebrated the God in whom a dead man was actually be able to be raised. Right. The God who raises dead men. Now, if Jesus can do something this great for this woman, there is hope for us. There's hope for me. There's hope for you. There's hope for all who are not only suffering spiritually, but even those who are suffering naturally. Verse 16 says, fear seized them all and they glorified God, saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. I think that's quite a statement. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. What happens next can be described as fear taking possession of everyone in that crowd. 
When someone gets manhandled in the hood, we say he got hemmed up or he gripped him up, right? In the NASB, it says that fear gripped them all. Speaking of fear as this animate force that overtook the entire crowd, fear seized them all. But it wasn't a crippling fear. It wasn't a fear that brought along with it terror, right? They were actually struck by awe and wonder and reverence and admiration for this Christ. I think that's the proper response to witnessing heavenly intervention and divine power, which leads to this outward expression that came from being gripped by fear. What did they do in return? They glorify God. I think this is a common theme throughout Luke's gospel. Even as a baby in a manger, when an angel of the Lord announced the birth of our Savior, the shepherds were filled with great fear. Just verses later, we read, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it has been told them. When Jesus heals the paralytic in chapter 5, verse 26, it says in verse 26, And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God. And we're filled with awe, saying we have seen extraordinary things today. And as they glorify God, they make two statements. One, a great prophet has risen among us. And the second statement, they say, is God has visited his people. Well, let's look at the first statement. A great prophet has risen among us. Why would they say that if Jesus didn't prophesy? He didn't open up a scroll. He didn't expound on the word. Sure, like other prophets, he didn't exclusively focus on the rich. He ministered to the poor as well. But was that enough to proclaim that Jesus was a prophet? Maybe it was because what took place in Nain was all too familiar with both the prophet Elijah and Elisha. Was it the recognition that Jesus would be the prophet that Moses spoke about, that would be like Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18? But I believe they also realized that he was even greater than these prophets. This prophet was different. We read in Hebrews chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Jesus is greater than all. I think it's safe to say that, right? As much as they were used by God, they were but a shadow of the one who is the foundation and the pinnacle of every biblical office. The second statement, God has visited his people, meaning he has come to help his people, ultimately not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And we see that that's not the only thing he did while he was here. This is where I begin to draw my conclusion. We serve a God that is a present help in our time of need. He may not always heal the people that we love, and it hurts when that happens. We will suffer many things in this life, but we must press on. We must stand firm on his promises. We must be still and know that he is God. Be encouraged by Psalm chapter 24. I want to read a few verses there. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, 
Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Because God has done such great things for us and we are in awe of him, may we respond the same way, glorifying God and broadcasting what he has done. The government has gone beyond its calling. Like Satan, the government is making an attempt to dethrone God. Like Satan, the government is offering you riches and things that will make you desire, the things that you desire, the government is saying, here, we're going to give you that, right? Like Satan, the government feeds off of fear. The government has taken the role of daddy. The government has taken on the role of caregiver. 2020 has taught us through experience that the world is looking to the government for healing. The world is looking to the government for hope and peace and happiness. Church, I want to persuade you today to spread the message that Jesus is our compassionate Savior. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is Jesus, the one who left his throne to visit his people, to serve his people and to heal his people. And he didn't virtue signal for votes and for money, but he lived our experience and he took on our hurt and our pain. Jesus is where hope is found. Would you tell your neighbor to look nowhere else but to Jesus? Would you tell the sick and the shut-in that I know a healer and his name is Jesus? Would you tell a selfish person who has overlooked the afflicted around him that I know where forgiveness is found and his name is Jesus? For he is a compassionate savior, he is a compassionate God, and he is a compassionate friend. I want to close with what R.C. Rowell wrote in Expository Thoughts on the Gospels concerning this passage. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His heart is still as compassionate as when he was upon earth. His sympathy with sufferers is still as strong. Let us bear this in mind and take comfort in it. There is no friend or comforter who can be compared to Christ. In all our days of darkness, which must need be many, let us first turn for consolation to Jesus, the Son of God. He will never fail us, never disappoint us, never refuse to take interest in our sorrows. He lives who made the widow's heart sing for joy in a gate of name. He lives to receive all laboring and heavy laden ones if they will only come to him by faith. He lives to heal, to heal the brokenhearted, and to be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And he lives to do greater things than these one day. He lives to come again to his people that they may weep no more at all, and that all tears may be wiped from their eyes. This is our God. He is a compassionate Savior, a compassionate friend, and a compassionate Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would use it to bless your people. A lot of us are going through different things, and I know this text was timely for me. Lord, help us to deal with loss. Help us to deal with grief in a way that honors and glorifies you. Lord, I also pray that you would use the loss in our lives to, to make your name known, to draw people to yourself, to Awaken us of the reality of the vapor that our life is. Lord, thank you. I pray that you are honored and glorified in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.